millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. R.C. Sproul said, For the Armenian, salvation is possible for all, but certain for none. In the Calvinist position, salvation is sure for God's elect. Woo! Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer. It's my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And we're so thankful you're joining us today. And if this is your first time here, you know, the way our show kind of plays out is on the Saturday podcast, we just try to help Christians as best we can navigate this secular, religionless world um, that we find ourselves in. And um, if you feel like sticking around Monday through Fridays on the podcast only, we do five-minute daily devotionals as well, just walking through the Word. So today, um, we're going to be discussing you know, what for most of our life was basically a Christian curse word. You know, you didn't speak of those Calvinists over there. Um, but yeah, we're talking about Calvinism today. So we're going to be doing this by looking through this book for Calvinism. And it'll be in the show notes. Everything we talk about and discuss will be in the notes. You can go check those out. There will be some affiliate links down there. If you decide to buy something through those, we'd be greatly appreciative. But um, this book was written by Michael Horton, and it's a follow-up to what we talked about last week, which was against Calvinism. So we decided to kind of do this three-week sort of look at the arguments against Calvinism, the arguments for Calvinism, and then next week, if you stick around, we're going to kind of give our thoughts on where we land, you know, as people who have grown up, you know, kind of far from Calvinist um, theology, if you will, Calvinist doctrine, to today where we sort of find ourselves, you know, not agreeing with it being a curse word, basically. We're kind of like, I don't know why they get so much grief. So yeah, so I think it's good to always look into the things even that people are against, because you need to know the opposing view, why people oppose it. So that's this the reason we wanted to dive into this. Yeah. And you know, we don't want to just like I've said a bunch of times on here, I don't know enough to even claim to be Calvinist or Armenian. I feel like in the last three words, I've just had so many, or the last three years, like so many new words in the Christian faith dumped on me. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know where to start with it all. But that's what we want to do. So 
that's how we're going to be kind of looking um, at this episode, but that's going to be the back half of the episode. Before that, we're going to do our normal look at some stories from the news. Um, but before we get to all of that, is there anything you would like to say? Um, pray for Spencer. He just registered for his classes at the Master Seminary. So, yeah, to see how that goes, <laughs> if it's too much of a workload. I mean, just pray that, yeah, just managing time well and all that stuff. Yeah, we're taking it slow a little bit. Um, Nikki will be there helping me along. She's just as interested. And um, that's also in the line of why we're looking at these books. That's kind of why I selected the Master Seminary. Uh, we have a video on YouTube where I sort of lay out the four reasons why I chose Masters as the seminary I wanted to go to. But it was kind of in light of what Nikki said. You know, we've started learning more about Calvinist doctrine. And it appeals to us. We're not outright denying it or cheerleading it. But I want to learn more. Um, John MacArthur is a very well-known, you know, reformed Calvinist. Um, but more so than either of those, I think he's a very true to what he's trying to be is mm -hmm. like a um, just a good Bible teacher. So I thought, let's go to this um, this seminary, John MacArthur's Master Seminary. Um, and see what we can learn from there. And I don't think I'm a drone. I think I'm a free thinking individual. So the stuff I agree with, I'll agree with. And what I don't agree with, I don't. And if you care to follow along the progress of my journey through the master seminary, I'm going to be updating it, you know, sporadically with classes and different things like that. So if that interests you at all, give us a like and a follow. Um, if you're on the podcast, you know, we would still appreciate your support, of course. <laughs> so, um, but also one more prayer request for me, and this is a big one. So if you guys have been with us for a while, you know that I'm in the military and I have submitted a religious accommodation to avoid getting the COVID-19 vaccine. And up to this point, the entire basically U.S. military has denied, you know, basically every religious accommodation. And just this week, as of the 14th of July, a judge by the name of Matthew McFarland, I think out of Ohio, he granted a temporary restraining order uh, in response to a class action lawsuit that a bunch of people in the Air Force had filed against the Air Force. And the restraining order basically means that nobody can be punished or discharged for their, um, for their religious accommodations packet, whether it was approved or denied. That only lasts for 14 days, though. And then he's either going to have to rule on whether, uh, I guess, ruling a preliminary injunction against the mandate, which allows us all to stay without being discharged or punished. And then it would eventually go to a higher court and, you know, the Department of Justice or whoever would argue against the Air Force and all these sorts of things. But that means we'd be allowed to stay for a little bit longer. And hopefully, you know, this ruling would mean the mandate would just go away. Our religious freedom would be intact and we could continue to serve as we've always served. So I say all of that gobbledygook just to ask you to pray, um, pray <laughs> that, you know, you know, ultimately God's will would be done. But God is merciful. Yeah. And we want his mercy here mm -hmm. because I'd like to finish out my career. You know, it would be 
nice and I don't want to leave, but I just don't want to, um, you know, do something that goes against my religious convictions. So just be praying for Judge McFarlane. There's a lot of men and women in the Air Force that are kind of, you know, excited about this a little bit, but we're also, you know, kind of caging our expectations there. But just keep those in your prayers, if you will. And as always, Team Cardinal, Cardinal Contingency Solutions. Please consider reaching out to these guys. The links will be in the show notes. They can handle anything in regards to, uh, really, they can handle pretty much anything. But in regards to messaging, exploitation, counter-exploitation, these are kind of areas that they've really been honing in on in the last few months because they've seen a huge need for it. And, you know, everyone's got a statement. Everyone's got a, you know, whether you're a church and you got a doctrinal statement, whether you're a business and you got mission statements and you want to keep your employees and yourself, you know, on the same script, if you will. But we're surrounded by people with smartphones and exploiters. And, you know, it's really easy to get you to look like you're saying something or doing something if you're not aware of what's happening. So Cardinal can give you the tools, um, the training to help make sure you, your employees, your whoever is, you know, staying on the same page, keeping yourselves out of hot water. And uh, I think it'd be beneficial for you as well. We are also proud members of the Christian podcast community. So got about 50 to 60 different Christian podcasters. You can see us proudly right there in the <laughs> middle. Say, Look, there we are. <laughs> um, and you can see they got, you know, podcasts for student ministry. They got podcasts mm-hmm. for parenting on there. All Christian podcasts, um, people from all different walks of life. So if you are interested in listening to some new podcasts that aren't just, you know, NPR, Joe Rogan and whatever, you know, Spotify is shoving in your face, go jump on ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. You'll find links in the show notes and you can find good godly men and women that got good and interesting things to say. And it's not just, you know, what everybody else is, you know, listening to that you know, mainstream media thinks you should be interested in. So um, that's that there. All right. Prepare yourself. The time has come for our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death as we take a look at the news of the week. Boy, do we have some news this week. You always look so happy to say that. I love it. It's my favorite. (laughs) When I first was putting the little music together, and I had like the girl scream. Nikki's like, you are not having people scream. And I was like, it's what I feel like every time I read the news. So it fits. Um, but this oh. first story here, uh, you want to just read the headline, honey? It says, very young black children hit and hurl ex... How do you say it? Expletives? Expletives. Sorry. Expletives at police. Shut the bleep, bleep, bleep up. Bleep, bleep. Yep. And then do you want to read these uh, like down to there? What is ATF? It is the alcohol, tobacco and firearms. Okay. I meant to ask you that before we started. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, The video shows a handful of very young black children. uh, One child still in diapers and one barely out of them becoming violent with police officers, hitting them and shouting expletives at them. Shut the bleep. Shut up bleep. I don't know. (laughs) I can't read when they're all like that. 
<laughs> a child and the main aggressor in the situation seems to say to one cop as the video opens. The child also tells another cop to bleepity bleep and insults the cop's ugly bleep shoes. Both cops in the video appear to be black and their uniforms indicate that they are members of the ATF. What was that again? The alcohol, tobacco, and firearms okay. is what they are. So, you know, you guys might have heard of this story already. You know, that's kind of the blessing and the curse of us doing a show on Saturday. You know, a lot of the, it seems like the, the cool stories are happening on like <laughs> cool Monday stories. and Tuesday. Not that this is cool. This is heartbreaking. Um, but last week in our discussion here, you know, we talked about virtue and morals. That was kind of a special episode that we put out on Sunday. Mm. We were talking about virtues and morals. And I read a quote during that from Thomas Jefferson, where he said, virtue is not hereditary. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's absolutely true. I think we can see that playing mm -hmm. out. But neither is hatred and malice. Um, like virtue, you know, hatred and malice is a learned behavior. Um, so it's bad enough when you see virtue is really no longer being taught or instructed kind of broadly in our country. Mm -hmm. um, but it's even worse when you see that hatred and malice is being taught in its place. Yeah. And I feel like hatred and division is just more known of than, than acts of love and goodness and charity. It's like what's being taught in the schools more. They're making kids more aware of what's wrong with the world. And they're just painting the picture of the world for the kids, really laying you know, all the lies in the media and everything that we, but, they want us to believe is really going on so that we view people a certain way. That's what I'm talking about. Like they're not painting cops in a good light. I'm sure they're just hearing a bunch of things at school and then it's being brought at home to the younger siblings. And you yeah, know what I mean? I mean? We know that's going on and like, but you know, if they teach what's right in the world and respect for authority and for adults and parents, that just interferes with the social justice agenda. I think. <laughs> no, it does. And you know, we've had schools and, you know, places of education have kind of been overrun with really, you know, people that hold a lot of anti-American sentiments. And that's definitely bleeding off onto the children mm -hmm. and what they're being taught. Um, but then, you know, also kids are coming from broken homes more and more frequently. So they're not even really being instructed at home. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because if you're growing up in a house without a dad, you know, by and large, the, the role of the dad is to be the enforcer, right? You know, mm -hmm. I've heard it said, you know, on other places that the first level of authority that children should come into contact with are mom and dad, mm -hmm. you know, but when you're growing up in a broken home and you never really get any level of authority and, um, you know, schools anymore can't really discipline kids right. in any way or sh way shape or form and yeah they have to agree with the kids now that you know they identify as a cat <laughs> yeah if you watch the what is a woman documentary like if a kid wants to tell you he's a cat and he purrs you have to be like that's good johnny that's good so you know but you could say you know we're all falling apart right all different communities are failing um and stuff like that but we just wanted to focus on the black and minority communities, really, because that's what this story is focusing on. This is a black child with some black parents or, you know, older folks around and stuff like that. But even more so than that's what this story is, 
I mean, if your eyes are open and your brain's turned on, you can tell that this nation is sort of like laser focused on trying to ruin the black and minority communities. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to miss that. And especially if you're in those communities, you probably, f- hopefully you feel it, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a Christian person. But um, I was reading this story and I thought, you know, we're failing these uh, these communities and stuff for largely the same reason why I feel like we failed in Afghanistan, you know, is over a 20 year war. And listen, I'm no expert. I'm just one guy's opinion here. I don't speak for anybody or on behalf of anybody. This is just my own thoughts. But, you know, I think we lost in Afghanistan largely because we were trying to fight a spiritual war with guns and bombs. Um, and I think in America today, you know, we're fighting spiritual battles and I don't even think the Christian side by and large has even woken up to that, you know, idea yet. They're not even involved in the equation by and large right now. So I think it's very, I don't know, mm-hmm. disastrous. Yeah. No, it's like, what do you do? Cause the gospel is needing to be preached, but we still have the problem of, uh, professing Christians thinking in this very liberal way, the way the news media wants us to think. It's like, we need to reform the churches again before we even send people out to, to preach, to evangelize, because then we're just multiplying more, more um, liberal profess. I just say professing Christians. Cause I don't know. It's hard to put those two together. Not that they can't be because you know. Well, we've talked about those numbers before, 6% for the biblical worldview. So I, I know, know. that's but probably the number. Well, but then all these kids, this generation of children growing up without fathers, and then these kids end up in jail. And I'm just thinking the jails and the prisons is where our ministries need to be, need to be focused on. Um, like, I don't know, our culture, the American Christians have just been too busy living this health and wealth prosperity gospel that like they've forgotten to disciple and care for their own kids and one another. And I don't know, just thinking about, Oh, how important it is. (laughs) Like the church, you know, we need, you know, just this issue here with these kids growing up in these bad situations and, you know, they'll end up going and foster a lot of them because they're just growing up around crime. And, you know, if their parents are into that, like more Christians, we need, to be fostering kids because we know we can have an impact on them. We can, we don't, you know, have them for a very long time. You could just have them for a a few nights, even at the shortest, but you can plant those seeds of truth into their lives. Like we need to be doing more. And this is a very easy, not that it's that easy. I know you got to jump through a lot of hoops, but that's for safety reasons, of course, but we need to get on board with that. You know, Right. I mean, that's, that would certainly help. I mean, yeah, it's good to be in the jails, but a lot of times too, like you're almost too late at that point. I mean, nothing's too late for God. Nothing's out of his reach. Well, but- one of the guys in the um, Christian podcast community, he's a pastor now and he got into ministry. He went into seminary after he got out of prison. Right. So there's, there's a story there. Stories for sure. I just mean, you know, obviously the best scenario, right, is we get the families that love God and raise their kids in the way they should go. If that doesn't work, we can still get them when they're young, train them up, 
you know, the older you get, the harder it gets yeah. almost, it seems. But, um, you know, in the book that we're talking about today for Calvinism, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. He references the screw tape letters at a certain point um, in the book. And I thought the part that he referenced from screw tape letter fit perfectly here um, with what we're talking about today. He says, um, one of Satan's sort of, he talks about one of Satan's really like great plays um, to put on Christians. And let me see if I can find it here really quick. Uh, He says, what we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of what I call Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order. And then he goes on down later to say, substitute for the faith itself some fashion with Christian coloring. And I thought Mm. that's perfect for, like you said, I mean, the problem with most of our churches, the people we would even be sending out, they're learning this version of, you know, Christianity and social justice. Yeah. Christianity and you know whatever lgbtq rights and christianity and liberalism christianity and whatever else right yeah um so they're basically taking a play right out of satan's playbook here so yeah i mean it's it's desirous but that's Mm -hmm. even for the ones that would be awake right (laughs) that thought oh i could go and help maybe but for most of the country right like we still think somehow a tax policy and like drug reduction is going to somehow make a dent, you know, when Satan and his minions are just ravaging the minority communities all across this country. You know, mm-hmm. Satan, he's working and he's gaining ground. His soldiers are wide awake and they're engaged. And, you know, it's about time that, I don't know, the Christian side of the house, the Christian warriors like realized it and just started to get engaged. Because, um, Chris, you know, the minority communities in this country, they're, they're in a bad spot, you know, Yeah, they're up against a cliff, they're up against a wall here, and they need to be rescued. And the only rescue that you have a hope of is Jesus Christ. And that's going to be brought to you by the hands and feet of Christian men and women. That's the only hope that you really have here. And, you know, as we've talked about before, Christianity's dying in America. Um, you know, like I said, 6% with a biblical worldview. So you got 6% of this country that's got to go out and somehow rescue <laughs> the rest to bring them back, you know, and not that this is necessarily going to be one back, you know, hundred percent of the nation to Christ, but you know, you certainly can't give up on a whole population of people and be like, eh, you know, I guess they're just hoes, right? Because they're building the next generation of derelicts and misfits, mm-hmm. you know, that we got to try to save them from and, I was looking at some stats uh, as well that I think just sort of lines up well with this topic that we're talking about here. And uh, the first one here says that 74% of all black people claim to believe in God, what it says here. And then it says also that 62% believe that their church, that it's important that they talk about politics at church. And then if you add to that, that President Biden and the Democrat Party won roughly 92% of the black vote. Um, You know, you can be pretty much certain that even these Christians in the black church and stuff, by and large, that want to hear this message, 
you can be sure that what they're hearing in church is a satanic message. <laughs> like, that's not even good. Um, you know, it's an anti-Christ message. And, you know, because they're going to be hearing a Democrat platform of politic, right? And the Democrat Party and their acolytes, the media have anti-Christ um, ideas and thoughts to spew. And I know you might be saying like, you know, what about the Republican Party, right? <laughs> and listen, Republicans are mostly lousy. We'll agree mm -hmm. with that. Um, but the Democrat Party, you know, it's anti-freedom, it's anti-life, and it's anti-Christ. Like, that's a satanic political party. Um, so you have really a bad political party or a satanic political party. So I think what we need to do is just, you know, focus on Christ and try to get the politics as much as we can out of it. Because uh, yeah. that's what these people need when you see something like a kid in diapers going up and smacking a cop and cursing at him, hitting him. He don't even know why he's doing it. He's just probably copying. Oh, he's most certainly yeah. copying. But That's they have a learned no behavior. fear of authority. And that just is going to stem to, I mean, it means they have no fear of God. No. You know, it is a spiritual condition. It is. It's a spiritual condition for sure. And um, do you have any last thoughts on that? But you have one more story that I think ties in really well with this article. Um, no, we can move on to it. So this next story comes from the Christian Post. And do you want to read that headline? Fools are just killing us. Yep. And then just read that. Okay. On a recent episode, a real-time Bill Maher, is that how you say it? Yeah, Bill Maher. Bill Maher began his concluding monologue of new rules by saying, before we tackle any of our daunting specific problems here in America, we have to figure out why a country can solve any problem if so many of its people are intractably and astoundingly and mind-numbingly stupid. And then just read that paragraph. And uh, Mars point in showing these examples wasn't simply to mock people's lack of knowledge, but rather show that the, sh the shortage of brain power today has very practical and devastating implications. Unlearned and unwise people make all sorts of bad decisions that boomerang back not only on them, but on everyone else as well. Yep, and then he says, put another way, fools are just killing us today. And mm. if you think about this, um, this story, you know, in light of the previous story, you know, that black neighborhood with their children in diapers, cursing and hitting cops. Like, like we kind of mentioned, that level of stupidity is learned behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's learned really from equally stupid people. And if you think back to um, an uh, episode that we did just two weeks ago where we looked at Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity, um, this article about these black children and their parents sort of epitomizes uh this article here with the fools but also that theory of stupidity it's like a mindless easily mobilized mob that's acting really against their own best interest mm -hmm. it's crazy and the term fool is found nearly 200 times in scripture but nowhere is it found more than in the book of proverbs in 76 times the best hebrew lexicon defines fool as stupid in practical things, insolent in religion. 
Yeah. And the writer in this article, uh, if I can find it real quick, he says, for instance, Proverbs 14.1 says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Um, and again, pretty applicable. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yeah. that makes sense here. And that just makes me think of, um, there's another proverb, and it says, laziness is brother to a destroyer. Same thing. Like you're just, by not doing anything, you know, Things are just being destroyed because you're not helping, you're not maintaining, you're not doing anything to um, improve. And I think that's a a huge part in this, you know, just parents are not training up their children in wisdom and just letting the public school system teach and also letting kids just run the streets and, and they're learning what acceptable behavior is or isn't. No, I mean, we are, we, you know, that's probably, yeah, I mean, maybe a topic for another day. We've largely sold out all future generations just for our own selfishness. Yeah. And in so many different levels, so many different ways, we've sold out every future generation just to appease our own happiness. Yeah. Uh, and it's shameful. That's an, a very much anti-Christian perspective. There's no sacrifice There's for no the good of others. There's no eternal view. You know, I saw an article today, I don't have it pulled up, but a girl was saying, I think in front of Congress that her, she had an abortion and she said that it was the greatest act of self-love she's ever committed. And I was like, that's the most perfect way you could have ever said that self-love. That's what our world and our generations are really all about, just self-love. But, um, you know, they're just, yeah, reaching back to satanic politics um, and they've really been trying to, or they're advocating really for the destruction of the nuclear family has been something that the satanic left has been striving for, for many, many years in this country. And I think it's black lives matter. You know, they actually have, or they did in their, I think it was like 13 tenants that they ascribed to, but destroying the nuclear family, uh, nuclear family was one of them. So. Yeah, I mean, it's intentional. They're trying to, they're basically trying to ruin the next generation and they're doing a darn good job of it. Yeah. But yeah. it's amazing, like, just what they've accomplished. Like, who would have thought, like, 50 years ago, where we'd be today? Like, yeah. Well, especially even in the minority communities, like, you know, and I'm obviously not a minority, but you listen to people that talk. You know, I mentioned you guys, Jason Whitlock, a lot of times, and he talks about how the black, um, you know, religious people in this country were really a bedrock of faith mm. for our nation. So maybe that's one of the reasons why they've tried to destroy them so hard. Mm. And even, you know, the Latin communities, they were, you know, very strong Catholic faith, traditional values in a lot of sense. And that's just being ruined, you know, so... It's intentional for sure. I mean, these people have a lot of time and a lot of people with, you know, knowledge of a sort that in academia and all these sorts of things that are purposefully figuring out ways to ruin these people and these children's future. So it's very much satanic. But this writer makes reference in here um, in light of Proverbs 14.1, he makes reference to the economic situation in America you know, and how that was really brought about by fools. 
and it's kind of destroying us. Um, but I thought instead of looking there, let's look at the children, you know, again, from our previous article. And these parents are fools if they're the parents at all or, you know, grandparents or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. But their foolishness is tearing down their house, right? Or, you know, their family with their own hands, as the proverb says. Because these kids are almost certainly, without divine intervention, going to grow up. They're being set up for a life of violence, disrespect for authority. At best, it's just that, right? At worst, they're just another, you know, dead body, you know, some sort of violent outcome um, or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, that's at best. And it's because of either what is being done or what isn't being done by the people that are raising them, you know, because like we said, virtue is a, is not hereditary. It's a learned trait. Well, so is hatred and malice, violence. These are learned behaviors that they're learning Mm -hmm. by these foolish people that are raising them because kids by and large are a blank slate, right? They're a clean slab that you can mold. You know, that's why the Bible tells us to train up children in the way they should go. Don't just let them wander and you know, I was even telling the guys in jail, like, even you just being righteous isn't enough. Yeah. And them just being around a righteous person doesn't lead them to a righteous life. You have to train yeah, them. They have to, to be instructed. Them. And these kids are, they're being instructed in a way, you know, but it's towards violence. It's toward disrespect. It's towards I hatred think and people anger. People think that like kids aren't paying attention, that they're not watching. Like you got the TV on. So they're learning from that. If you got, you know, if you got the TV on, they're learning from that. They're learning from whatever is going to pop up on their iPad or whatever device they're allowed to have. And they're just being fed information that we're unaware of sometimes too. And yeah, they're watching. And I think people well, think then, they're not learning behavior, how to talk, and they're even trying to form how to think about things. Well, and not to mention along with this, but you know, so much of like, at least the youth in like the, the black and minority, like this hip hop culture, it's all violence. It's all perverse. Mm-hmm. It's all drugs. It's all, you know, just prideful and it's awful. Hip hop culture is awful. Um, and everybody's infected by it. It just happens to be much more prevalent in the black and minority community. So yeah, but when they're just in front of whatever they're watching or whatever they're listening to, it's generally not great, right? It's generally just helping them be led astray even more so. But um, the article references another proverb in there. It references Proverbs 18.2. Do you want to read that one? A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Yep. And then in the article, they go on to make the point about our sort of national push towards green energy is uh, their example of this level of foolishness. And I don't want to belabor, but they did bring up a pretty interesting point in this article. It says down there, just below that proverb, it says, as proof of this proverb, there's a recent Wall Street Journal article by someone named Rachel Wolf. And it says, who rented an electric car for a four-day trip from New Orleans to Chicago. And she says she spent more time charging the vehicle than sleeping. 
So think about how stupid and illogical and really unprepared America is to make the electronic or electric vehicle switch. Um, I just thought that was fascinating. But back to the yeah. children, right? <laughs> These parents, again, right? And we see this very prevalent all over the country. But again, just sort of narrowing in on the black and minority communities. These parents, again, would be fools in my eyes. That's the way they would appear because um, they're not delighting in understanding, but they're just revealing uh, their own mind or reveling mm -hmm. in their own mind. You know, they can't come to an understanding that policing is in this country is vital, you know, and in fact, is all evidence would bear out. It's vital to black communities to be safe, um, but they've been taught to hate police. Right. Again, that theory of stupidity, they've been taught to hate police. Um, and it, that theory of stupidity is coming mm -hmm. largely from a satanic Democrat Party and its national leadership. Yeah. You know, but more so, they've been taught to hate authority, um, even against all evidence, you, you know, against all right. the death and the violence in many of these communities. They just revel in their own mind, right? That cops are authority. I hate authority. So it's just, yeah. it's a level of foolishness and it's sad. So, yeah. you know, what's the fix to all of this? Um, obviously, we're not probably smart enough in and of ourselves to come up with an ultimate fix, but. Like we talked about, it's spiritual. Yeah. This is not a tax policy. This isn't a 2022 red wave, you know, fix or something stupid like that. It's spiritual. Um, and the writer does make the point in the article. He says, throughout his word, God inextricably links morality and the knowledge of him to wisdom and solid, solid decision making. Mm. So knowledge can come from the world, right? some form of knowledge, but it takes God's word and the Holy Spirit to bring wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're missing here. Yeah. So I will right. just point out this one last, I'll have you read this verse, honey, because he points it out in here and it's mm -hmm. just so perfectly, you know, works with today's culture. But um, do you want to just read here? Sure. Says we're all familiar with the verse from the Old Testament book of Hosea that says, "My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge." Um, but what's not as well known are the preceding verses that describe a people who don't know God and His design for a well-functioning society. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. So, I'm going to replace Israel with America in verse 1. And although it was, it was written thousands of years ago, it, I think it perfectly depicts what we have here in 2022. Yeah, I mean, it sound. I mean... They're swearing, <laughs> lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Yeah, we can learn from Israel. We see what they did, and why would we be any different when we turn from God's ways and we turn from his commands? We wouldn't be, and we yeah. aren't. Um, but we would love to hear from you guys on what you think mm -hmm. you know, this is and how it can be fixed. You know, and I know that we're kind of focused on the black and the minority community here that we're talking about. Um, but this behavior and this thought process, it really doesn't know any race or ethnicity. 
Right, you know, it doesn't right. know economic status. You know, it's widespread amongst everybody from the rich to the poor, the white to the black. We've all been infected with this. Um, you know, and it's not going to be obviously fixed overnight. It's taken us generations to get to this point of depravity, really, in this nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably going to take just as long to get us out, you know, but as they say, a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. So that's how we have to really look at getting out of this mess, I think. I know we need like a motivational speaker <laughs> to like get people going with that because that's the biggest problem is people just, they don't believe it, that they can make a difference. They don't like want to take that first small step. They just, they want to join in on something after it's become a movement. You know, they can see that buildup of the little steps and then like, oh, okay, I'll... I'll join, but how do we get that going? How do we motivate people to make those small choices? You just got to get a TikTok influencer to make like a cool <laughs> we gotta TikTok get challenge looking. of like reading the Bible with your kid. But no, it is. It's hard to conceive, right? Because we live in this sort of like fast food binge watch generation. We want everything now and Immediate we want all of results. it now, right? Yeah. Um, so a, a majority of people won't do anything about this. They'll look at all the problems in the world and they'll, you know, bite their fingernails and they'll complain about it under their breath or what, but they won't do anything. It's always about been it. like a minority of people that did any big change. I mean, that's all it is. And really the, the way we've gotten into this country is it's been steered into the ditch by a minority of people because they have a louder voice and the rest of us just sit there and go, well, you know, they're not talking about my specific thing right now. So what do I care about? You know, so yeah. my advice here to fix this is it's a spiritual problem. So this has to start in the church. And I think it has to start mm-hmm. in your church, not in the church or a church, but your church with you. Uh, and I've taken this specific message, like I've talked about before, to the jails where I get a chance to talk and preach. And I'm talking to the fellas in jail about we've got to get back to a moral and virtuous people. That's something Christians are called to. Second Peter tells us that we have to add virtue to our faith. That's something we have to do. So if you're in church and you see signs of this sort of Democrat or satanic talking points, you know, speak against it. Email your pastor. I'm not saying you got to stand up and cause a scene in the middle of the service, but email your pastor, email the elders, call them, ask for a lunch. And talk to them about this and, you know, see if you can get through. Mm-hmm. But we've got to get to a point where we allow our religion to govern our politics again. You know, not where we are today where we are, you know, a Democrat or a Republican. And wherever Christianity lines up with that, then we're okay. But wherever it doesn't, we're going to ditch the Christianity for whatever political right. party we are. So, so, yeah, so address it in your location where you are. and then. You've got to live as an example of that righteousness. And you really got to have that confidence to correct others when you see them making mistakes, even those who might be in authority over you, pastors, elders, and stuff. Um, And that comes with having your own level of knowledge and understanding of the word. Um, But even just those around you, when you see them like, hey, man, your kid's acting crazy. Like, you need to go and stop that kid from acting like a psychopath. You need to tell him that's not proper behavior. And yeah, you're going to burn bridges along the way, um, but it's not going to be lofty ideas. We're not going to have million man marches on Washington, D.C., led by Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. It's going to take individual people in their individual settings, sort of being examples, helping lead others, 
one or two or three at a time. That's going to be the way we turn it back around over the course of a generation. Yeah. You know, because you're not just going to be like, well, I elected Barack Obama, so everything's fixed. No, it's not going to work that way. A politician can't save you in a spiritual matter. It just can't happen. Yeah, we need to, like I said earlier, just, you know, people are watching. Like, everybody looks up to somebody for how to behave. And um, I think we individually need to be aware that others are looking up to us, even if it's like the neighbor kids next door. Like, we have kids over sometimes that sit in Bible study and they see how we interact with one another in the home, how we talk to one another. Like, you don't know the long-term effect that's going to have on them, how they're going to remember, even if they're not brought up in a godly home that respects authority. That might stick in their mind. Hopefully they see us that way, you know, but like, yeah. oh, look, they respect one another. They, they correct each other when they're wrong and they uh, apologize. It, it is those little things. And I'm not thinking in the moment I'm doing anything great, but you don't know how God is using you in just a, a child's life. You're unaware that they're even watching you. That's why it's so important when you're not in church and you go out on vacation, even you need to keep your conduct the same as it would be in the fellowship with your church. We need to take our walk very seriously. And I think Christians who are being lukewarm are part of this problem. There's no consistency in this virtuous, godly, moral character because I'm not blaming it all on these lukewarm Christians, but I mean, we used to be that way, you know, we're on vacation, you know, let's drink and let loose for, you know, like keeping your spiritual life separate from your worldly life, but they're supposed to be the same. No, it should be the same. And I think this is actually, at least in my mind, this is a hopeful idea this is a hopeful fix because you're not looking for the right whatever president that can change the nation like all you got to do is yourself walk a righteous life as best you can with god you know and then just try to be an example and try to help other people walk that way as well that's all you have to do focus on the little circle god gave you yeah and that's all we can do god's not calling you to something bigger than your circle of influence. No, because that's what the Great Commission is. I mean, we all know that we're supposed to go preach the gospel, but the second half of that commission is to teach others to obey the commands that Christ gave us. So you follow those commands and you just teach them to other people, teach Mm -hmm. them to adhere, or at least help them understand. And yeah, you're going to not get through to a lot of them. That's just the way it is. And really, people don't like to be reasoned with. So you may... Just be planting a seed mm-hmm. that gets watered over time and hopefully can bear some fruit later on. But it's very unlikely you're going to go, you should repent and believe. And they're going to be like, thank you, brother. You're right. No, nah, I mean, they're going to give you some pushback, but hopefully they're going to see your lifestyle. They're going to hear that consistent message, see the consistent righteousness in you. And that's going to lead them to, you know, hopefully turning themselves back because otherwise, you know, you just throw your hands up and go, yeah, I'm just going to try to remove myself. But really, as we've seen, the areas that we can remove ourselves to are getting smaller and smaller. This is infecting larger and larger parts of our nation, parts of our homes, our country, city, states, everything like is being infected. So we have to start pushing back, right? And trying to regain some ground here. So do you have any last thoughts on this story before we try to get to our positive story to end this on? 
We can go. <laughs> All right. So we do have a positive story that we want to end this on here. And do you want to read this headline here? Or just read this first paragraph here. Okay. Benny Johnson, the wife of Bethel Church senior leader, Bill Johnson, has died following a lengthy battle with cancer days after being put in at-home hospice care. She was 67. Yep. So you may be questioning why I said this was a positive story. Um, and it's not because she's dead. <laughs> but I do want to highlight this story for two reasons. You know, first one. We should be praying for the Johnson family, you know, regardless of how you feel about his church and his ministry, we should be praying for them. But secondly, I wish that everyone that calls themselves a Christian would respond this way to the death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. um, he says down here, actually, I think I have, let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, he had this message that he posted mm -hmm. on his Facebook page. And I'll have links to his Facebook down here, but it just says healthy and free. That's his message of his wife um, after she passed. And then his son went on to uh, say, my mom went home tonight. Love you, mom. You know, there was like no bemoaning God. No, you know, why God didn't you heal her? Yeah. You know, and look, it's not lost on us, the irony that Bethel Church is no, sort of known for their faith healing, right? That's their big thing. Um, but let us remember, you know, that as Christians, we're supposed to walk in love. Uh, we're supposed to be peacemakers. We're not supposed to be kicking people when they're down. And right, right. We're supposed to love our enemies. Love our, and he's not even an enemy, right? Yeah, but if you're he, in disagreement, I mean. He's in disagreement, but. A lot of people. You know, I pulled enemy. Romans 12, verse 15 and 16 says, uh, this is the Apostle Paul reminding us, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, yeah. live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise mm. in your own sight. You know, so I just thought this is a nice story. I mean, it's a terrible story. You know, I feel bad for Bill, but the way that he's handling, at least publicly right who knows what's going on behind the scenes but publicly yeah you know this is a great message that i think people need to hear you know that yeah you can be sad but you can still know that they're in a better place right And you can still be happy about that she's healthy and free right hopefully dancing up there in heaven with you know god right now pain free carefree right so i sent bill johnson a message i don't know him from adam but I was like, hey, man, your message was, you know, really encouraging. I appreciate it. Sorry for your loss. So if you want to send him a message, his Facebook link will be down in the show notes. Um, I'm sure they would appreciate getting some, you know, I guess, condolences, if you will. So Yeah, because I know they got a lot of black before when they were trying to, they did that like prayer thing for that little toddler that died. And they were trying to like bring her back from the dead. And I know. And I just realized that was going on after his wife was diagnosed with cancer Yeah. back in, did it say 2018 or 19? So they were already dealing with that and still were holding on to faith um, that this little girl would be brought back from the dead. But she wasn't. But I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with having that kind of faith. So, I mean, I wouldn't 
bash them for that. No, I mean, there's certainly things, you know, and I don't want to get off into the Bethel church thing. There'd be, you know, issues. You there's could have things I don't agree with, but I'm certainly but, not, I don't yeah. disagree with praying for someone to come, come back, praying for your loved ones to be healed, you know, yeah. doing whatever you can. Right. Yeah. The Bible tells us to pray. So yeah, pray. Like I have no, now obviously again, Bethel church, I don't want to get into all that, but this is a good story. Uh, handle it well. So I hope in my moments of loss, I can handle it um, as well as he did. So yeah. do you have any last things to say about any of the news stories we talked about? No, we've been talking for like an hour. We should probably get to. <laughs> we have. Um, we don't hate the black and minority community. I feel like you have to say that. We just... Uh, I know, don't you? We're so stupid. Um, you know, but we just want to see all of America come back into a more righteous... Yeah. Uh, more righteous place you know this is the place we live we want it to be righteous we want our kids to grow up in a righteous place and we want their kids to grow up in a righteous place so that's all it is but all right so we have arrived now for our look at christian profanity as we call it <laughs> kelvinism oh man there's like People are just shuddering. My mom's well, punching their computer screen <laughs> monitor right now. Um, but again, this oh, is our review of the book for Calvinism that we're looking at today. So really the crux of Calvinism, at least as far as most people would understand it, it kind of rests on the five points of Calvinism and it's sort of affectionately known as TULIP. That's the acronym that it goes with. So just a quick recap here. The T stands for total depravity. U is unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. The I is irresistible grace. And the P is for or perseverance or preservation of the saints. Um, so really there's two main camps that you know most people will fall in. There's probably others, but I think by and large these would cover a large swath of those who would profess Christian uh, faith. And that's the Calvinism side, which is kind of the camp of God's sovereignty. And then there's the Armenian side or Ar Armenianism, which is kind of the camp of the free will. And they're both in regards to salvation, yeah, you know, God's sovereignty and salvation or free will and salvation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. so I was thinking, um, the author does, in this book, for Calvinism, he doesn't um, discuss as many of those logical arguments as did the author of Against Calvinism. So he uses much more scripture, I've noticed, um, to defend this doctrine, which is good because scripture interprets scripture and defends itself. So he, he defends some false accusations made about Calvinism, which... I was once in error, um, an accuser, just being ignorant of what was actually taught, what it actually is. So let's hope this um, helps you come out understanding more broadly the, the true teachings of this doctrine. Yeah, and this isn't going to be some deep dive into Calvinist theology that covers all the points, right? Oh, this we're is... just scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah, and... You know, and it would make sense, right? Because in one book, you're sort of, he's arguing for Calvinism. And the other book, 
against Calvinism. He's just kind of telling you where he's wrong. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it would make sense that you would make more scriptural references in backing your point of view. So I, I would assume I haven't read uh, the, the fellas that I think this Roy Olson guy who wrote against Calvinism, he has a book on Armenian theology. So I'm assuming in his Armenian theology book, he probably goes Which I would deeper. like to read. Right. Because I got to say, like, before I even knew um, what Armenian and Calvinism, like, I heard the term Calvinism before I ever heard Armenian. And I thought, oh, I'm an Armenian. But I like, like, I'm, you know, learning about Calvinism. I'm like, well, I, I agree with some of these points here. And I never knew about the differences. Did you ever hear the term Armenian before? Never. Or Calvinism. We heard what we were against before we even knew what we were. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to reason why the books were written the way they, they are. Um, so we want to do this episode kind of exactly the way we did the Against Calvinism episode. So we're going to go through and just kind of tell you where the author stands or where he says Calvinism stands on right. each of the five points of the tulip. Um, and then we'll just have a couple of extra points at the end that we thought were interesting to note. And then again, if you find this all interesting or you care next week, we're going to kind of go into which way or what makes more sense to us kind of a thing. So we're not going to, you know, really argue too heavily one side or the other here. We're really just kind of being like, Hey, this is what he says. This is why he says it. And I thought this was interesting kind of a thing is the way we're, we're looking at this book today. So um, we'll, and I will make note here because I talked about it in the previous episode, which will be linked in the show notes if you want to go give that one a listen. But the against Calvinism author makes note that Armenians and Calvinists both typically agree on total depravity and the perseverance of the saints. So he was like, we don't really have a big disagreement there. So I didn't really cover those points against Calvinism, but I'll cover them today for the Calvinist side. So mm -hmm. uh, for the tulip, for, or for the T, for total depravity, uh, the point that he makes about total depravity from the Calvinist perspective, and I'm just reading these from the book because they were too long to type out. So I know. <laughs> he says... Total depravity is often misunderstood. As understood in uh, Reformation theology, it does not mean that each of us has committed every possible sin or that everyone is equally depraved in terms of outward actions. What it does mean is that everyone is equally guilty and condemned and that there is no aspect of our existence that is unscathed or open to God's grace. No less than our bodies and desires, our minds, heart, and will are under the command of sin and death. The total and total depravity refers to its extensiveness, not intensiveness. Mm -hmm. That is, to the all-encompassing scope of our fallenness. So that's where he stands on um, total depravity. And he does write, and I think it's worth noting, he says Kelvin's point is crucial here. When he speaks of the bondage of the will, or kind of like in regards to our total depravity, uh, he says it is in relation to sin and not God's sovereignty. You know, mm -hmm. so he's basically saying, Kelvin's saying, our wills are bound to sin. 
And that's what we choose apart from the Holy Spirit, basically. Yeah. And I was just going to say before I read, um, I like how he does make note that there's a difference when he's talking about free will. We all have a natural will and a moral will. So we're, uh, this total depravity is about our moral will. We don't have the moral ability to um, come to God on our own. So I liked that distinction. I've never heard, or maybe I have heard, I just didn't remember, but right. everybody has a natural will and then the yeah, the moral will. So I liked how he explained how Reformed theology um, does not actually start with total depravity, though, because that's what I've heard a lot. Like, it's always begun there. He says it starts with creation before the fall and that we were made in the image of God and that we still bear that image and it's been corrupted, but not completely destroyed. And I was going to read some of this. It says, um, Calvinism teaches that human beings are basically good in their intrinsic nature, endowed with free will, beauty of body and soul, reason and moral excellence. In short, we are created in God's image. Now, that might not fit the stereotype, especially when the famous tulip starts with total depravity. However, Reformed theology never starts with the fall, but with God's good creation. If we start with total depravity, we easily assume that human beings are just rotten from the beginning without any goodness, integrity, or free will. However, Calvinists believe that this is a grave distortion of the matter and will lead inevitably to a misunderstanding of total depravity. And I think I was going to read this other part. Yeah, I really like this other part here. It's just a little further down. It says, how could it be otherwise? Um, since human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, when we marvel at human intelligence, wisdom, intentional acts of kindness, and love of social relations, and when we examine the intricacies and abilities of the human body, we can only exclaim with the psalmist, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So we're not just, I know Paul Washer paints a really good picture. <laughs> we're just wretched sinners. We're just pigs wallowing in the mud. <laughs> Dogs returning to their vomit. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I have had this image like formed. Like we're just filthy. Yeah, morally. But we forget we do have this other side like we are still in the image of god and when god created us it is good and we haven't been totally destroyed like i said we've been corrupted we're tainted like sin is woven throughout all creation it's not totally destroyed by god's mercy so we still yeah. bear the image of god there's still goodness of god like in the creation in human beings and all of creation we can see his goodness yeah, no, and I think that's a good point to point out because, um, I mean, so much of Calvinism, at least from our perspective, you know, you don't hear a lot. And that's probably our fault, right? We didn't do all of our homework, but yeah, you hear a lot of the bad stuff about it, um, you know, that we're all just wretched sinners and all that, but you lose sight of, you know, more of the intricate stuff where they're like, nah, that's not 
where we normally start. We start <laughs> before that, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's an important point to note there, but that's for the T. So for the U here, that is the unconditional election. What he says for that point. And sorry, we don't want this to just be super long with us reading, but it's just the way it has to be. So um, let me see. He says, everyone who takes the Bible seriously must believe in election in some sense. It is a prominent theme throughout scripture. The real difference, especially between Armenianism and Calvinism, emerges over whether the elect are chosen unto faith or in view of their faith. In other words, is election unconditional or conditional? And just because the previous author um, or of Against Calvinism, he talked a lot about reprobation. That was basically his main argument against Calvinism was reprobation. And um, that's basically God sort of electing some to hell. So if he's electing some to heaven, then he must be electing some to hell. So he did write on that point. So I just want to read it because we made that point previously. He says, the other side of election is reprobation, God's decision not to save some. In passages already cited, especially Romans 9, God is said to be free to choose and to reject, to save and to harden. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and, the, and another for dishonorable use. However, the whole lump is guilty and corrupt. It is not a neutral lump of clay, but a mm -hmm. condemned mass. God is not arbitrarily choosing some and rejecting other, others. Rather, he is choosing some of his enemies for salvation and leaving the rest mm -hmm. to the destiny that all of us would have chosen for ourselves. That's right, because he'll say we were all enemies of God. Yeah, so he's basically making the claim that God isn't choosing some to go to hell. Right. Rather, he's saying everyone is choosing hell for themselves, and God is mercifully choosing some of his enemies out of that destiny, basically. And again, you might be like, ah, screw that. That's stupid. We're just telling you what Calvinist point of view is. That's their argument here. That's what they're based saying. Based on that, on that scripture. Yeah. Right. Based on what this author is saying on that. So again... Yeah. You may read Armenian or somebody else's, but this is the Calvinist point of view that he's making. Well, a lot of Armenians say, which I've said, um, like God, God saved me or saves people based on a, a foreseen faith. So he pointed out, um, he made a good argument in the book, um, how God did not choose Israel based on foreseeing their faith because had God looked to the future to see faith, he would not have found it at all because they rebelled over and over again. And even right after seeing all those, um, like those plagues, those judgments on Egypt, and then they saw the parting of the sea and how God provided for them in the desert. And then even more of his power and, and judgment seen throughout that time in the desert. So they didn't even have faith to endure after witnessing God move in that way. So if we're not born again through just faith alone, we will not endure. So they had this faith that was short-lived and proved to not be true saving faith because it relied on those miracles instead of relying on what did God say, his promises. So they just 
They were always testing God because they didn't believe his word. So I really like that he pointed that out. Like if it's God saw something, there's nothing in the Old Testament that says God chose Israel because he foresaw something in them. Right. I think he even points out, I can't remember the verse off the top of my head. I didn't write it down, but I think there's a verse there where God even mentions that he didn't look to Israel for anything because yeah. they were in fact the least of all the nations when he chose them. So mm-hmm. he does make that point for unconditional election, which I thought was a good point. So they as were well. the weakest in all the nations. And yeah, you know, that like scripture comes to mind like, my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good point there for, you know, I think we talked about that last week potentially too, like the notion of God looking down the corridor of time to yeah. see who will choose him and who won't. Then that's not unconditional. Um, it's conditional. Right. So that would be the yeah. Armenian point of view that it would be in fact conditional. So, um, but that's the U. So yeah. the L, which is limited atonement. And the author does go in there to, he says he doesn't like limited atonement. He prefers to use the phrasing of particular redemption or definite atonement is what he prefers to use. Because um, that word limited, is it that word he doesn't just like? Limited? I don't remember why he said he didn't like God it. God but... doesn't limit himself or I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I could probably find it, but it's <laughs> taking too long. He says, uh, uh, so for limited atonement or whatever he wants to call it, he says, all Orthodox Christians maintain that the atonement is limited either in its extent or in its nature. Calvinists believe that it is limited or definite in its extent, but unlimited in its nature or efficacy. Christ's death actually saved the elect. So he's essentially claiming here that Christ's death on the cross is unlimited in its nature, Mm. but its power to save... um, is limited in the extent to which it saves because it only saves the elect. So that's where you get the limited atonement. The power is unlimited, but what it's actually applied to is limited to the elect. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the, the point that he's making there. And that's why he says it's definite uh, redemption or whatever yeah. particular, I can't remember what word to use, particular redemption. redemption, definite atonement. So Yeah, that just always makes me think of how could it be unlimited? Like, does Jesus just do something halfway, like a half accomplishment? Like that's, you know, did he just make salvation possible? I don't know. Did he, did he finish it? Did he, he said it is finished on the cross. He doesn't yeah. say it's possible or... <laughs> Well, and that's the thing, because the Armenian side, as we mentioned, I think last week, you know, they would agree that uh, Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross is unlimited in a sense, but then that's where that free will comes in, that the power is unlimited and available for everyone, but you have to choose it if you want it, sort of a thing. Whereas the Calvinist side says, nope, he died for those that he has preordained that he's foreknown and they are saved but that's all who's saved those who are elected so yeah they both agree on the unlimited nature of christ's sacrifice but the armenian says free will will decide who chooses it calvinism says nope god's already decided who gets it and they don't have a say in it necessarily yeah i'm gonna read um 
Yeah. I was just highlight. I just highlighted some of the beginning of these paragraphs. I'm not going to read all of them, but so he has like three options on here. Option one would be Christ's death redeemed every person. Option two, Christ's death made the salvation of every person possible. And option three would be Christ redeemed all the elect. And I'm going to read some of this, a couple of paragraphs here. Jesus said that he came not to make salvation possible, but to actually save all that the Father gives me. He adds, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In John 10, Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep which includes Gentiles as well as Jews. Sorry, I should say when he's done speaking. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that last part. And then so it says, well, the Golgotha heavy on his heart, Jesus prays to the Father. And Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Once more, Jesus includes all who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Throughout John's gospel, then, there is an unmistakable thread testifying to an eternal covenant of redemption between the persons of the Trinity, with the Father giving a people to his Son, all that the Father gives me. So I'm just thinking if he gave him every single person, then every single person would be saved. It's funny because I can hear right now, because we've even had this uh, chat that all of that is out of context. Um, I think it's me so and uh, my buddy on YouTube, we've been having this exact same discussion about those exact verses, uh, which is funny because... The whole context Christianity thing is I context is real and it's important, but it's so funny how two people will read the same verse and be like, "You're out of context." <laughs> You're both like, "No, I'm." Well, in ask context. what is what so, is the context? It's just funny, but yeah, it's just funny that you read that exact verse that we've had that exact discussion <laughs> about. So, um, yeah. So there you go. It's not me. It's uh, Michael Horton. You got to contend We're with just there. So his. no, that's that's pretty funny. Um, okay, you can move on to the next. Yeah, so that's our say. that's the Calvinist look. And again, you might say he's got those verses wrong. That's fine, but that's what they're holding on to, right? At least in a sense. So, uh, and that's just you know obviously a part of it. I'm sure there's more, and there should be, right? We read the whole book, so. There is more, I guess. So, uh, but for the I, irresistible grace. And what he says on irresistible grace here, he says, Chosen in Christ from all eternity, we are called effectually to Christ in time. Through faith, which itself is God's gracious gift, we receive Christ in all of his benefits. And then he goes on a few pages later and he says, all of this means that the gospel is not an experience we have, much less one that we can bring about. 
it is an announcement that creates faith uh, in the Redeemer who makes it. It comes to us from the outside. It creates new experiences and inner transformation that yields good works. But the gospel itself and the Spirit's effectual calling through that gospel remains distinct from anything done by us or within us. The gospel is God's life-giving word, creating a new world out of nothing. So that's his irresistible grace, basically saying that God's grace unto salvation cannot be resisted by those whom he calls, you know, the elect. Whereas the Mm -hmm. Armenian side, their point of view, again, would say that God's grace is all-powerful, but God chooses to limit himself to allow us through free will to choose him. So the Calvinist says God's grace is all powerful and whom he calls is called. Armenian says God's grace is all powerful. He limits it just a tad so that we still have, even though we're being pulled by God, we still have the ability in ourselves to deny that call through our free will. That would be the difference between the two. But that moral will, we like they teach the inability to come to him you know they say you have to be born again first and then calvin would yeah 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 armenians say you have to repent and believe first to be born again it's just those things are flipped like which thing happens first right so that's their point here on irresistible grace okay Um, yeah well i'm not gonna read anything right Oh, oh yeah i just had a scripture um can you scroll down a little bit? You guys are so lucky that I put this episode together or else oh. Nikki would just, she would <laughs> sit here with the book open from page one and read to you to page 191. I should just have an episode where I'm just, so, I'm going to read it to you story guys. Story time with Nikki, <laughs> be her podcast. Or I can't like read certain words. How do you say that? <laughs> I'm telling you guys, you got to sit. Well, you don't want to, but I'll be like, hey, honey, I'm going to sit down and put this episode together. And she's like, okay. And then she'll read one sentence and be like, so they say, and it's like a two minute conversation. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And I turn around and then another sentence, like every sentence, she has a three minute dissertation on. And I'm like, I know I do. I love you, honey. I can't possibly work on this around you. I can tell by the look on your face. You're just looking at me, but that look on your face, like, stop talking. (laughs) So, yes. Anywho, carry on. Okay, so this section of scripture is still going along with um, irresistible grace. And I just want to say, like, irresistible grace is not a term I like to use. I kind of just, I don't like irresistible grace. I think it's more like, well, the one I'm going to say right here, this is what I believe. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't call it irresistible. I think that's just a weird way to say it. But anyway, oh, no, what I didn't put down what book it's from. But I'm starting in verse 24. It'll be on the screen. Okay. <laughs> so if you're not watching, I think I'll I'll try to list it in the show notes, but okay. you'll know what I'm it sorry. is. I'm sorry. It could be Matthew it. or John. Oh, goodness gracious. It's a gospel. <laughs> so. Okay. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So right there, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That would be what they'd say, irresistible grace. Like you hear the gospel and you just believe. You're just like, well, and he that makes, makes it sense. that the effectual calling. It's effectual. It's effectual calling. But for I think it's sheep. that you understand. You have spiritual ears to hear. But when you're born again, like if it's the work, like the spirit, um, is like the wind. It goes where it wishes, and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You know, Jesus is telling that to Nicodemus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how it is being born again, and. So you're just going to take all of that scripture completely out of context, huh? Scripture interpret <laughs> scripture. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not taking anything outside Everything's of scripture. Everything's out of context. Everything is you know? trying to keep it in. <laughs> no, but then also, you know, Nikki's favorite section of scripture that she tells you about every single day of our life is the parable of the wheat and the tares. I was not even going to say it. Every day. I'll bring it up next time. The wheat and the tares. You guys, tares. you guys read it. And you tell me what it, well, Jesus explains what it means. We don't even have to try to decipher that. So that's the I, irresistible grace. So the last one here is the P, and that is the perseverance of the saints. So what he says about perseverance of the saints, he says, let us recall the golden chain with which we began this chapter. So earlier on, he says, so this is the golden chain. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Romans 8.30 is the golden chain. He says, Paul does not say merely that some of those whom he predestined, called, and justified will also be glorified. In fact, he even puts glorification in the past tense as well, stressing Mm -hmm. its certainty for all of the elect. Mm -hmm. So... You know, it's sort of like God's irresistible grace. You know, those whom he elects, God will ensure through his grace and power that they persevere until the end. So if you're God's elect, you'll never fall away, basically. He will keep you um, in his His hand, right? Like that's his perseverance of the saints. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. But um, do you have any last points that you want to just bring up that are interesting? Oh, yes. I wanted to bring up um, about election um, on the topic of believers praying for their unbelieving friends and family to be saved. I need the book. (laughs) Sorry. Not used to doing this. Okay. Okay. Um, according to the Arminian perspective, the new birth is essential for salvation, and yet it is something that we must bring about by our decision. Why, in that case, uh, why would we pray for the conversion of others? Why wouldn't God say, I did my part, and now it's up to your friend? Every time we pray for God to save someone, we are assuming that the new birth is a gift of God prior to the act of faith. So just thinking about that, even the, um, before, I mean, I've always prayed, God move on their heart. God just open their heart. 
to receive. Um, I mean, how would you pray? Just God, when I share the gospel with them for the 20th time, or however many times, you know, you have those friends and family that just argue with you and they, they mock, but you still like love them and you so badly want them to believe, but you're asking God to come against their free will. If they have free will, if it really is up to the person to decide, you admit God has to do a work first in order for them to believe. That's what you're saying. When you're asking God to do something, you're not saying, God, help, help me think of more um, convincing words. There's got to be something I can say that'll get through them. And you know that there isn't. So unbelief, um, I mean, for, when we're asking God to work against their unbelief and give them the gift of, we're asking him to give them the gift of faith that can only come from God. It doesn't come from within us. We're not born with faith. We're not, like, it just, you understand what I'm saying there. Even the Armenian acknowledges mm -hmm. that salvation is only of the Lord. And, you know, for all of our life, you know, growing up, you know, when we would pray, it would be a prayer of like, you know, pray that the Holy Spirit would go out and prepare their hearts prepare to their receive hearts. the word, right? Like we would be mm -hmm. calling on God to basically till that ground, right? Make it ready for his seed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do think that that's interesting. And I'm sure, I don't know, maybe they have an argument against that, that that's not what they think. But it seems logical, right? That if you're praying for somebody to be saved, to be doing whatever, healed, anything, you're acting. You're asking God to basically act apart from whatever they are, they are or are doing. And God, you just do it. Isn't you it bring interesting them to salvation, so. how Jesus said, um, pray the Lord of the harvest, uh, send out workers into the harvest field because the harvest is ripe. So if it's ripe, does that mean all the rest of them aren't going to become ripe and be saved? <laughs> I don't know. You may have to dive into I never thought of that until now. I was like, so, well, the harvest is right. Um, the yeah, one point that I wanted to bring up that I thought was, you know, interesting, and he makes the point in here, just mostly on the case of Israel, but, you know, it's that most people, and maybe they don't call it this, but I think most Christians would agree with election on a level, on some level, right? We would agree that Israel was elected by yeah. God through no doing of their own, you know, but even, you know, other things, right? We see that Abraham or Abram is called by God through really no doing of his own. Um, Adam was created by God through no doing of his own, really. Like we see election all throughout scripture. You know, David is anointed king through no doing of his own. Um, mm. All these different times when God is essentially electing people and, you know, John the Baptist, right, filled with the spirit in the womb, God essentially electing him to be a prophet from birth. So we see these things. So it's almost like it's just an argument of where does election stop? Mm -hmm. We see points of election, but we just don't want to go all the way to say, OK, well, everybody's elected because then I guess you get into the argument of, well, hyper Calvinism. And then that means every time I, you know, use a pencil god knows it and he's making my hand write that letter no and that's going like, against no. yeah so that where it gets too far you know so then you're like 
you know, on the other side, we're like, well, no, Israel wasn't elected. God saw their faith. And, you know, so you can go on either extreme, right? But I thought that point was interesting. And it's a point that I've had myself that we all believe in election at some point, even if we don't acknowledge it as election through these different patriarchs and different, you know, Israel and different things like that, that we see in scripture laid out. Um, I mean, I think you could even say Paul was elected, which is probably why he writes the most, it seems like, about election, because Mm -hmm. he was actively seeking to persecute God when he was chosen for no good reason. Elected for certain things that God specifically wants you to accomplish when it comes to salvation. I think, I don't know, people could argue, I've heard the argument, well, they were elected for this purpose, and... That wasn't right. for salvation. And, and I'm not saying that yeah. there's not good arguments against it. Certainly there are. I mean, that's why there's people that have degrees and everything else that argue against it, right? So we're just giving you the points here, stuff that seems interesting to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd be interested to hear what you guys have to say on this again. We will remind you that if you're looking to have some super intensive theological debate on Calvinism, <laughs> we're not the right people. We will talk to you about it as best we understand it. I encourage you guys to go and read about it, though. Well, read about it, and we need to read more about, I mean, all of it, right? Because there's godly men and women on both sides of the aisle making good arguments. So it's not like one side, you know, is going to heaven, the other side is going to hell. We're not saying that at all. Yeah, because we've said before, there's believers even in the Catholic Church. They're just, some people are just unaware, I think. But God has people everywhere. But I just, I want to say again, um, uh, just because it seems to be one of the biggest issues people have against Calvinism, but it was one of the, uh, I guess like you'd say a false teaching about Calvinism that they are very much involved in missions, evangelism. Um, they actually, Calvin never taught, uh, not to evangelize, um, in this book, it actually goes through many, many reformed Calvinist, um, preachers, um, ministers, pastors, whatever, were very much involved (laughs) in missionary work. Well, Um, that would be an argument that I would make because, you know, and and that's a hyper Calvinist argument, right? That it's a sort of a dead theology because you don't do anything, but that would be, you'd be able to judge the tree by the fruit, right? Because the Bible tells us that those you know, who know the Lord, keep his commands. We have a command to to preach and share the word. Mm-hmm. So if you're not doing that, right, even if you're claiming to be I'm a hyper Calvinist, well, you're probably not saved then. If you're not keeping his commands, right. if you're dead in your faith, uh, there's no works to show your faith, right? That James would tell you, then you're probably dead in your faith and they're not a real believer. So yeah, I mean you're kind of arguing that an unbeliever that calls himself a Calvinist proves that Calvinists I mean, don't share the gospel. The so, book of Acts. I mean <laughs> Right. So you don't you want to be careful about that. Yeah. Because But they the elect have to hear. They hear, you know, his voice. How do they hear? Through the preaching of the gospel. Right. And we would say, you know, the whole goal of us preaching the gospel isn't to save souls, because we don't save any souls. Our goal of preaching the gospel is to be obedient to what God's called us to, yeah. knowing that we yeah. You know, first off, we're told to do it and we love the Lord, so we do it. But also our rewards are stored up in heaven. Like 
So I just go mm-hmm. and share the gospel, right? And whoever happens to hear it and get saved, cool. right? And because if they we don't, don't, whatever, right? We aren't taught to discern who the elect are. We are just called to preach the gospel, just like Jesus. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Just we share everywhere, and we don't know which ones are elect. That's not our job. We just simply present it. They accept or reject it. That's not. Yeah, and I think that would be the Calvinist argument there. So, and he makes that case in the book. So, mm-hmm. um, again, we'll have links to the books if you want to give them. They're pretty short reads. They're about 200 pages long. Pretty easy reads. Um, they're not terribly expensive. Those links will be in the show notes. But otherwise, we'll be back. Oh, no, we do have our sermon recommendation. So, Uh, A sermon recommendation that surely many people will write off before they even look at it, but we're going to give it to you anyway. So it comes from James White from Apologia Church, um, talking about the doctrines of grace and answering objections. So again, you may dislike James White. You may already know about him and made up your, your mind about him. But if you care to hear at least what a Calvinist objection to something would be, give it a listen. Um, or just write it off. That's up to you. It's your free will, if you will. So, um, But otherwise, we'll be back on Monday with some daily devotionals, uh, five-minute daily devotionals. Then we'll be back next week just sort of looking at both of these books together, um, what made Wheat sense and tares. what didn't. Wheat in the Tears is coming out <laughs> next week. She is going to say it. So Study up on it. <laughs> that is, uh, that's all we got. I got a frog in my throat, so it's a good time to quit. All right. God bless. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.